0: Hello, I'm sitting in the wood on the hill above our house here in rural Lllnathli in West Wales on a lovely, sunny, breezy morning with the beech leaves falling at my feet. I'm David Hedges and I'm managing the Homegrown Homes Project for Wood Knowledge Wales. It's a study of the timber construction supply chain. It's led by Powys County Council and it's funded through the Rural Development Programme and being delivered in partnership with Cardiff Met University, Coyd Cymru and BM Trader. Now, ordinarily, Wood Knowledge Wales would have held its annual Woodbill conference this summer. But 2020 has turned out to be anything but ordinary. So instead of a conference themed around the Homegrown Homes project, we're running a series of webinars and podcasts which all have a focus on a particular aspect of the project. The podcasts are conversations between two people, like me, based at home, with an interest in the subject matter and a willingness to share their thoughts on the past, present, and the future. We made our recordings over the summer and sometimes the technology imposed limitations on us, which you'll hear when you listen. I'm grateful to all of our conversationalists for giving up their time to talk to me and for being open and honest And I hope you find them interesting and thought provoking. If you want to find out more about the Homegrown Homes project, have a look at the Wood Knowledge Wales website and follow the links to the various project pages. Right, I'm going back indoors now to do a bit more editing and to record the introduction to each of the conversations. Our first conversation focuses on the theme of forestry. I interviewed two professional foresters, John Healy. Professor of Forest Science in Bangor University, and Joe O'Hara, who runs her consultancy Future Arc in Edinburgh. We've put links to both of them on our website in case you're interested in getting in touch with them. My first question was to ask first Joe and then John how they were and where they were.
1: Well, hello Um, from Bonnie Scotland. So it's a lovely sunny day. I'm up in Edinburgh um, and uh, yes, I'm very well, thank you. I've survived a dose of the coronavirus and don't seem to have any long-term impact, so uh, nice to be out in the world again.
0: Brilliant. And John?
2: Yeah, um, I'm calling from a slightly more cloudy uh, Conway on the North Wales coast and all is well here.
0: Before our conversation began, we thought it would be good for Joe and John to tell us what got them to where they are today.
1: Um, I did a degree in agriculture and forestry and then got taken on by the Forestry Commission. So I spent my whole career in forestry and land use in one extent or another, but I ended up as, um, as Forestry Commissioner, I was Chief Executive of Forestry Commission Scotland and Scotland's Chief Forester which basically meant that I was responsible for the regulation and policy aspects of forestry um, across Scotland. And then I also had the duty as a UK Forestry Commissioner to oversee forestry in the UK as a whole. Um, I left that in uh, the end of January and I'm now working freelance and doing consultancy work and working closely with the Institute of Chartered Foresters in terms of development of the profession.
0: And John?
2: Okay, well my degree was in plant science and then I did a PhD in tropical forest ecology. But I always had an applied interest in how forests are managed. So I was very lucky to be able to come to Bangor as a lecturer in tropical forestry in 1988. I was really motivated to do this because I saw how important was our education at Bangor of future generations of foresters who have a responsibility for managing huge areas of forests, not just in the UK but around the world. And that motivation has grown further over the subsequent decades as Bangor now remains one of the world's leading centres in forestry education and research, and the only university in the UK still to combine these two. So I now feel um, really privileged to be the, the eighth professor of forestry at Bangor since it f- became the first university in the UK to teach degree level forestry in 1904. And while uh, much of my work remains focused on tropical forests, I I see more and more parallels with the challenges of sustainable forest management in the UK. So I'm very pleased now to be focusing more of my attention as a researcher and an educator on UK forestry issues. And just to note, one other notable first for Bangor in forestry was Mary Sutherland, who in 1916 was the first woman to graduate with a forestry degree anywhere in the world. But the challenge of attracting more women to the profession of forestry remains with us still today.
0: Forestry as a career is something we'll come back to later. To kick off our conversation, I asked Joe where our timber comes from.
1: Thanks, yeah. Well we get our, our wood from all sorts of different parts of the world. And the um, UK is is the, the second largest wood importer globally, and um, second to China. So we do get source our wood from all over the place. We do grow our own as well across the UK. Um and it depends on the sort of product you're talking about. So we get soft wood mainly from Sweden, Finland, and the Baltic states, we get Things like plywood, which doesn't really grow in northern, um, is made from wood that doesn't really grow in northern uh, temperate climates from China and Brazil. Uh, we, we've got we import a huge amount of uh, wood pellets for energy from the US and Canada, um, and then we import paper and pulp um, type products, and that comes largely from Sweden and Brazil. So it's a really global um, source that our timber comes in uh, into us from.
0: And, and if we look at um, that proportion across the UK, does it vary greatly between Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, or is that quite hard to determine?
1: It's really hard to determine because we, we have a UK market. Um, most of the, you know, in really broad terms... Most of the, the the timber that's used is grown in Scotland and most of the use is in England because that's where the people are. So Scotland's where a lot of the forests, more productive forests are. Um, and England is where most of the people are who are using all of that wood. But that's just in very broad terms. You've got you've got local markets. You've got um, you know Wales is producing a lot of wood as well, particularly for things like fencing. Um, so it's it really is a UK market. It's quite hard to look at timber flows down at that kind of sub-national level. But John might have a bit more information on the Welsh situation.
2: Uh, well, Joe's given a very comprehensive uh, answer, um, as she stressed. It's a uh... UK-wide market and many of the biggest um, producers of timber have a a sourcing strategy that spans across the UK so there's not so much of a local market in the different regions.
0: One of the things I meant to say up front actually was Do we need to think about the terminology that we use? I found coming into this line of work from housing, I had to get used to a whole load of acronyms and abbreviations that were unfamiliar to me. So do we use terminology like wood, timber, woodland, forest to mean the same kinds of things? Or does terminology matter? Does it matter whether, whether we refer to a forest or a woodland? Joe,
1: I think it absolutely matters, and I, I, I'm constantly having to explain it. Um, I mean, even in, in, in Scotland, you refer to people refer to the forestry as being an organisation as opposed to a land use. So I think you're. It's a really important point, um, and I'm really glad you raised it. Um, as as professional foresters, um, so so John and I are both members of the Institute of Chartered Foresters. We see forestry as the art and science of managing woods for a purpose um, and it it, it does all trees for a purpose even. Um, so I think the difference between woods forests woodland generally it's assemblages of trees um, is, is what we're ge- what I generally mean when I say forest but I do know in different parts of the country and amongst non-specialists often forests People have got a very specific image in their head when they refer to forest and a very specific one when they t- talk about woodlands. So you really have to just check in with the audience. So for anybody who's listening to this, when I say forest, I mean bunches of trees um, and they might be woods. They might be shelter belts on farms or they might be, be, be large wild woodlands or they might be productive plantations. I, I use the word forest to cover all of those.
0: Okay. What about you, John? Do you have issues with terminology? Well, I agree with uh, Joe and yourself
2: about the importance of it as an issue. And like Joe, I think it's a huge source of confusion and really uh, is a barrier to communication with different groups of people. Uh, I think there's a lot of culture and history here. And as Joe indicated, the uh, the word forest has a lot of um, connotations in mind minds of people uh, as uh, a type of... Uh, a group of trees that are managed for a particular purpose, whereas internationally the word forest is the generic term, as Joe says, the bunches of trees of all sorts of uh, different configurations. So I think we're in a real hole in terms of actually having a, an efficient and simple way of communicating with people um, using a common
0: vocabulary. So, so if I was going to ask you what <laughs> What existing forests look like or existing bunches of trees look like across the world? that That's a difficult question to answer, I guess, because we're looking at diversity, aren't we? Even within the UK, if I said to you, what, what do forests look like in the UK these days? John?
2: Well, exactly as you say, there's a huge variety of different types of forest uh, throughout the UK. Um, and they they differ in so many ways in terms of uh, what species they're comprised of, um, who owns them, what they're managed for, um, in which how they fit into the landscape. Um, that's the uh, diversity we have in this country and that, that reflects the same uh, across the world. Um, what we do see uh, on the global scale is that an increasing proportion of these forests are um, degraded. they are uh, damaged by direct human actions as well as increasingly by um, impacts of climate change, droughts and high temperatures, fires, invasive pest diseases and so on. So the appearance of forests is uh, undergoing very rapid change in, in many places around the world.
0: And, and is that change process um, something that uh, is, is becoming more rapid or would you say no, that's, that's always been the case over time?
2: If we look at the global picture, um, the rate at which we are losing forests, deforestation, um, is apparently not accelerating, but the distinction I was making is uh, of degradation uh, within the land that remains as forest. We have very poor evidence to quantify how fast that's occurring, but there's lots of anecdotal evidence that it is accelerating in many places.
0: And Joe, would you recognise John's description?
1: Yeah, um, and I think also the development of um, remote sensing and the the quality of imagery that we can now get from satellites and, and the like mean that we've now got a better handle um, than we ever have before of what's going on um, globally with with trees or with any other kind of vegetation, really, um, and and that. Is just moving forward in leaps and bounds. So, so I agree with John. The anecdotes are, yes, these forests are changing. Um, not always in extent, but definitely in terms of composition, um, and about what's going on in them. Uh, but also, our ability to track what's happening with them um, has has improved enormously, and will, I think, take another step change in the next um, the next few years as as new imagery becomes available. It's really what we do with that data that's going to be uh, a really a really interesting thing. It's like, okay, we might notice that things are changing and we might be able to quantify them better than before, but what exactly can we do about it?
0: And, and it sounds like we're getting better at gathering and analysing data that perhaps in the past we just didn't have.
1: Yes, and it's a very rapidly developing field, particularly once you combine artificial intelligence with um the sort of computer power we can get now and the imagery that's available from space or is going to become available from space there's all sorts of things happening in there like i say i think that the drive on this though is okay well we know that the rates of deforestation in brazil have been pretty high for the last few years quite what the world can and is prepared to do about it is um it's an entirely separate question so, um, so you could end up just in the, just really driving forest anxiety that we know there's a problem, but we can't do anything about it. But I think that's I think that's a really that's a sort of slightly um, depressing way of looking at it. But I, but I think we, we just got to be realistic. We are going to have better information than we ever had before. Um, it's just what we're prepared to do on it and what governance is in place to do something about it. I think the other thing I'd like to say is just about how quirky the UK is in terms of forest cover, and also to say that compared with our previous conversation about the word forest internationally the definition of forest is very clearly um, pinned down and that's why we can get global statistics so they're very clear definitions they're just maybe different from the word forest that we use in everyday language in the UK and in different parts of the UK. So I think the character of the UK's forests are that they are generally very young. We had um, probably 4% we estimates around 4% forest cover at the beginning of the 20th century um, across the UK. That's now up at about 13%. So, so unlike many other countries, the UK has seen an expand expansion of its forest area, but it was starting from very, very low base. And we're still globally in the in the very bottom end of the, of the of the league in terms of forest cover. So our forests are generally quite young and quite new, not just the trees but the soils and the whole ecosystems that are associated with it if you're looking at it from a global perspective. And we've also got fewer forests as a proportion of our land use than many other comparable countries at a similar latitude.
0: And are the reasons for for that low, that historic low um, forest cover figure, are are the reasons well understood, do you think?
1: Yes, I think that the the history of forests and woodland cover in the UK, John, I'm not sure when you teach it to your students at Bangor, but you know, you, you get it pretty early on as soon as you start looking at forests. So the forest cover started to, to be um, seriously reduced during the Bronze Age. That progressed through the Roman occupation. Um, and then really, um, then and then the, the last few bits that were left were really hammered during the Industrial Revolution. So, um, And then once we'd cleared all the forest, we then brought in grazing animals, and the grazing animals increased, and sheep came in. Um, and we could source timber from abroad because of the empire. So... Um, so why would people grow trees here because you could just import them from, from places overseas and that all led to this 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 long term, it was already low but then the existing forests also declined so it is, it is pretty well understood and recognised I think that, but John, when when, when do, do students get taught this, I'm assuming they do at some point during their um, degree courses nowadays
2: yeah, um, there's a, a lot of interest in the uh the long-term historical change in uh, in forest cover. I mean, I think you, you could argue that in countries like the UK and, uh, and some others in uh, our part of Europe, we, we got our deforestation in early. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, of all of the uh, co- co- causes that um, Joe talked about there, I think increasing human population and demand for food was probably the dominant one <laughs> from, from the Bronze Age onwards. And... The UK has a very high population density, um, and we converted virtually all of the land that could be used to grow food through crops or grazing livestock um, over many hundreds of years ago. Uh, And that increased global demand for food, local and global demand, is the the primary driver of deforestation in many parts of the world, particularly
0: in the tropics today. But if our forest cover is starting to grow again, what what's the reason for that? Have we begun to recognise the importance of of having more um, forest cover in a way that we didn't before? What what's what's leading to that to that change?
2: The big lever, if you like, amongst several others that changed government thinking. Um, is due to what happened in the First World War, when um, the blockade of this country um, and uh, the low level of our uh, existing forest cover after we've reduced it so far meant that wood was a very, very limited resource. It was a chronic limiting factor for various purposes, including, of course, pit props for coal mining that our industry depended on. And it was realised that, quite apart from shortages of food, that shortages of available timber was... uh, a huge threat to uh, Britain's success in that war um, and so consequently the government as a matter of top-down national strategic policy um, completely changed um, the institutions the legislation and initiated a, a large-scale process of re-establishment of a timber reserve of a, of a source of homegrown timber and. Although there were ups and downs during the decades of the 20th century, um, that trend towards increasing uh, forest cover continued until, I think Joe might correct me here, but certainly until the 1970s, I should think. But since then, that rate of increases in most of the UK has severely tailed off. We've kind of lost our enthusiasm at, at a certain point um, in terms of government policy for further expansion over the last um, three or four Decades, I would say, um, the situation is uh, a bit different in Scotland.
0: It was
1: the late eighties when it really started to, to to fall off.
2: Yeah. Okay, so it's about the last um, three decades. that Really, we've stopped that increase. Though in more recent years, it has picked up again in Scotland.
0: What's the reason why um, we're talking so much more about this this issue? Is it is it all to do with recognizing that we we are in a climate emergency? And we need to do something to um, try and mitigate the effects of that going forward, and, and and a recognition that actually growing trees is is a good thing to be doing when it comes to the whole agenda around carbon. Does is that is that one of the reasons that we we find ourselves reading more about forests and forest cover and growing trees now?
2: I think there's, there's several drivers. I think over the last Five years or so, that's probably the number one driver, the climate change policy from the UK government as well as the devolved administrations, um, the 2050 targets for reducing net greenhouse gas emissions have been a major driver and there's been a series of influential reports that have um, highlighted the potential of increasing tree cover, woodland cover to contribute towards that. There are also other drivers, um, and some of them have received a lot of prominence recently during the COVID-19 lockdown, and that is uh, increasing concern about uh, human health and well-being, uh, the importance of exercise and access to green space. That's been talked about for a long time, but I think that driver um, has received increasing prominence over the last year or two, and that's accelerated a lot in the last month or so. Joe,
0: go on.
1: Yeah, I I would also add into that two points. um, One other, if if I may, I'd just like to say a bit about um, one of the reasons why government has to intervene if you want to um, expand or even maintain forests, and it's to do the way with economics work, and it's because all of your costs in forestry um, come at the start and you don't get the revenue until the trees are big enough to harvest, and what that means is that the, the financial returns are so poor that the economic drivers are pretty, um, are pretty marginal, particularly when interest rates are high. So, so there's, there's a systemic difficulty um, in, in afforestation um, when you take a standard sort of Western economic model Because the the numbers don't stack up because you're having to discount your your incomes back over at best 35 years, but probably more realistically about 40 years. So, sorry, that's a bit of a kind of canter into forest economics, but it's a really important point about why the market, why this, why the government needed to intervene, why trees weren't being planted, why forests weren't being replanted and managed without government intervention is because the, the economics. Are are difficult when you're in, in when you're in an afforestation situation. So I just wanted to sort of put that in there so that your listeners kind of understand that bit about you know what, why this needed government intervention.
0: So the market the market can't solve the issue, so government has to step in and take action directly to support the growing of trees.
1: Yeah, at the moment, the way that markets function or have functioned over the last hundred years. Um, has meant that it once you if you factor in the cost of land um and the value of timber you know it's your two biggest is your two biggest costs and if you then add on to that your cost of planting the trees um it it doesn't start it's it's difficult to make that work when you're based on a, a economic model that assumes growth so you could put a pound into forestry or a pound into I you don't know a a supermarket, or, or, grow, or say growing growing a cow, um, you'll get return from the cow within five years. Um, you might get a bigger return from the forest in forty years time, but um, it'll be in forty years time. So that the economics don't don't really stack up, um, particularly when you've got high land prices like we have in the UK. So so that so there's a there's a difficulty with the way that the markets work. And you either need to to find ways to bring the market in to pay for the benefits from forests throughout their growing time, um, or you need to reduce the costs at the start or subsidise them. That's largely what we do through grant payments.
0: And and has government had a good record in intervening in the market? Uh, I mean, recent statistics would suggest that within the UK, certainly, um some some countries find it easier to get on and plant trees than others um joe you're you're leading the field up there in scotland it would seem um what what's driving that
1: so um so sorry i saw a little, little diversion to forest economics um but the uh, so what i was going to say was um i totally agree with with john about the um the impact of climate policy making the value of Trees for carbon in public policy terms really high, and that has been a big driver, and has definitely been a big driver in Scotland over the last ten years. Um, probably the most significant one, but not the only one. And um, one trend that I would like to point to is the amount of native woodland that's been created um, over the last twenty years. Actually, across um, Scotland, I'm more familiar with because obviously that's where where I was working. Um, The motivations for people planting um, native woodlands are much more complicated, Um, as well as the climate emergency, we do also have a biodiversity emergency at the moment, a biodiversity crisis with with crashes in all sorts of different species across the globe. And a number of landowners really, really feel they want to do something about this. So we've seen some incredible uh, native woodland expansion going on across the highlands. Partially driven by carbon, um, also driven by uh, by by biodiversity and just general environmental um, um, philanthropy, really. So, so I, I think it's it's not just the carbon that's that's been the driver. the other, The other um, issue, not issue, uh, the other point about carbon um, is that we got in Scotland some of our planting wrong in terms of carbon. So when you ask whether government has a good um, record in the case of market intervention, if you're looking in hectares created, yeah, Scotland in the 70s was creating thousands and thousands of of hectares of forest. But you look at that through the lens of carbon or you look at it through the lens of biodiversity and those forests were going in in places where they were actually causing a, a loss of carbon and impacting negatively on biodiversity. So what the carbon agenda is doing now is saying actually those forests need to be removed and returned to peatland, to to active peat bog, because that's actually better in terms of carbon biodiversity. And that's a very particular example, but it's just that there's a risk of saying, well, all trees are good for carbon, Many trees are good for carbon and are good for, for biodiversity, um, but sometimes we got it wrong. Sometimes public policy has led us in the wrong direction. But we're always learning, and that's the great thing about forestry: you're always learning, and the values are always changing.
0: Yes, presumably we didn't we didn't know what we know now back then, because if we if we'd known it then, we would have taken different decisions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think our values, you know, people's values change. Um, so. In the 60s, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, the, the whole emphasis is on getting product, the land back into production after the war, as John said, either to produce food um, or to produce other other goods such as timber. And just as agricultural practices have changed radically since the 60s, you know, we don't use DDT anymore. Um, there's all sorts of, of, of much, um, much gentler ways of farming which take into account the environment. It's just the same in forestry. So... Um, The thing is, is that trees were planted in the 60s are still still visible, whereas the fields that were dosed with DDT are less visible um, from the 60s and 70s.
0: John, have you got anything to add to what Joe's just said there? A hard act to follow, I'd say.
2: But yeah, yeah, there are some other other things we I could explore there. I mean, I, I'll go back to the point that Joe um, mentioned about the high price of land. I mean, it is a really notable feature in the in, in the UK as a whole compared with many many other countries around the world. Just how high land prices are, and and that reflects um, the fact there's a lot of competition um, for land uh, for people who want to use it for different purposes. Um, and so land that is um, productive for f- for food um, is rarely uh, economically viable for forestry because, as Joe mentioned, the short-term rates of return on food production uh, have generally been very, very attractive um, on those more fertile sites. Where many forms of forestry, be they native woodland or indeed um, plantations established for timber production, um, have a comparative advantage is, is on some of the less productive, more upland sites at higher altitude, on more acidic soils, um, where many of our native species, birches and oaks and so on, can can thrive perfectly well. But also in particular, the main conifer species we rely on for timber production, for the main market for timber in this country, many of those we've discovered for all of the trials and experimentation can be economically viable um, on these Less fertile upland sites, which means there's a much lower cost for uh, reduced food production. So that's why so much of a forest expansion in this country has been on those upland sites. But that has um, opened up uh, other conflicts. And Joe mentioned um, sites with deep peat, be they um, at altitude or in some cases uh, in the far north of Scotland, even quite low down. Um, and those sites uh, are really important for um, components of our biodiversity, uh, also for public access to open spaces, some of them in national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. And they're the type of forests that Joe uh, referred to have been seen as being incompatible with um, the values other people would uh, say are the most important for that land. So we have a another component other than just government's willingness to create the right financial framework to um, establish forests, we also have a controversy over changing current land use. And some in the commercial forestry sector, some investors would argue that actually we we would be willing to put more of our own money into um, establishing new forests that are designed and managed for timber production. But um, many of the regulatory barriers um, to the land use changes required are the biggest inhibition. But Clearly, it's obvious why governments are quite cautious about um, rolling back that red tape as some would see it because, of course, um, the risk would be that the environmental impacts would be very unpopular and and indeed have the risk of causing... um, Damaged components of biodiversity, as well as to uh, deep peak carbon stocks, and so on, as as Joe suggested. But I fully endorse what Joe says that actually nowadays we uh, have learned an awful lot, and um, fitting um, productive, economically viable forests into a landscape in a way that actually enhances um, biodiversity. as well as other important environmental values in terms of mitigating flood risk in, in some cases and so on. We know a lot more about how to do that now. And I do feel a lot of the battles that are being fought at the moment in this area are rather backward looking rather than uh, embracing current knowledge and, and, and future priorities.
1: Can I just come in and really, really support that, um, David, um, the, the, this question, this question of land use is. Is just so fundamental to all of this. Just talking about forestry without talking about land use is. I was trying to think this morning about a metaphor for this, and actually, the the kind of current one I could come up with is it's like, you know, during lockdown, when all of us are suddenly having to work from home, you have to decide where you're going to set up your home office. Now, do you you need to set it up somewhere where you've got good Wi Fi connection, where it's quiet? But that might be a room that's already being used. And it's just for, for another purpose, like, you know, your kids might be homeschooling there so because they have the same requirements. And it's the same with land use. Where you're choosing where your forests go and what type of forest go, you're not just putting it onto a blank canvas. There are other, um, other potential uses for that land. And as a society, we need to make a decision about which is the sort of land use that we want to encourage on that piece of land, recognising there's more than one choice and so what governments are trying to do is to make that decision. If we only look at it through the lens of forestry, we're missing, you know, more than 50% of the discussion. And I think this is part of the difficulty that this whole um, this whole conversation has got into. We went through it in Scotland. I mean, we're still going through it in Scotland as well. And I know it's really hot in, in, in Wales at the moment. We're seeing it in Ireland. Um, right across the place where you want to increase forest area, you can't just look at it through the lens of forestry. You've got to look at it through the lens of what's the best land use and to whom, um, what the local community might think, what investors might think, what governments think, what the local city people think, who might be paying taxes into it, um, and what farmers think. You know, All of those things have to come together. It's a land use question, not just a forestry one.
0: So are governments good at thinking about how they can Steer a course through all of the conflict, uh, and help in the decisions that need to be made about competing land uses. Are, are we good at, for example, coming up with with visions and then and then developing strategies to to help deliver them?
1: Okay, I think it depends. I think it depends on what your definition of good is. I mean, this is what governments do. Um, you know, governments have to decide; they have to take decisions. But often, where I mean, particularly where the market doesn't function um, and that's in so many places across society and they're always having to weigh the balance weigh up um one option versus another on the be- basis of their best guess of the the risks and values of the society that they're there to represent so so governments better be good at this because well i don't know quite what else you compare them with what's the comparator to the market um and i'm not sure the market's the best the best way to decide long-term decisions on land use but that's sort of asking the question about whether governments are good at that this is what governments do some governments are better at it than others Um, if you look at the planning system there's been some huge successes in in the application of the planning system to more urban development or built development Um, there also are some failures there are some things that are seen as successes one year 10 years down the stream that that down the line they're seen as failures so I think I think characterizing it as good or bad it is just, it's what governments are the best we've got for doing this, whether that's local, um, regional or national for doing this. Um, if they can't do it, I'm not sure who else can.
0: John, what's your view? I think one of the really most
2: difficult, the most difficult challenges we have here is that um, governments quite rightly do set national Policy objectives, be it in terms of a uh, greenhouse gas emissions targets, or as Joe alluded to, um, perhaps targets for increased house building to expand the uh, the number of homes available for people. So that that kind of national scale vision about what our priorities are, governments do set. The challenge is how we actually scale those down to to local decision making. In the case of housing. A high proportion of people would accept would would accept that um, we need to have more houses. But if it comes to a bit of green belt, which I enjoy walking my dog in 100 yards down the road from my house, then I'm going to lie down in front of the bulldozers. I'm um, going to lobby the local council that that land shouldn't be used to housing. It should be done somewhere else. Um, and I think, having said that, um, our planning profession down to local government level has um, a well-developed process for making de- lo- making local decisions about permitted development, about an application to build on a particular site and so on. I don't think we have the same local scale process in place for dealing with land use change between, say, agriculture and forestry or between a different form of agriculture or uh, different forms of forest for that, for that matter. And I think uh, unless we can find a, a method of... Um, you know, compatible with our democracy, but with a whole range of stakeholders of different um, people with different interests in the outcome. Unless we can find a way of engaging in the process over land use change at a more local level, then it will be very hard to implement the, the national targets that central government has a vision over.
1: We're experimenting um, up up in Scotland in terms of how to tackle this. Um, we've had a land use strategy that was required as part of our Climate Change Act from 2009. So so we have got a land use strategy that does try to address this. I couldn't agree more with John um, about the the challenges going from the national big picture stuff down a level. Um, We have regional forestry strategies in Scotland, so each local authority or group of local authorities um, produces a forestry strategy. And that's done by the planning department, which talks about the types of forestry that, they would support and those where they've got more issues. So that, so there is a level there. Level there. They've had mixed um, success, but they, they have definitely helped. And then you are starting to bring in that, uh, those planning professionals and, the de- importantly, the democratic accountability of the local authorities into these decisions. The new thing, the new kid on the block that we're literally just working on at the moment is establishing what are called land use uh, land-use partnerships and land use frameworks at the regional level. Um, so this initiative has just been started and tied in with the land use strategy to do exactly what uh, John has just been saying, which is to say okay, within this jurisdiction and, and there's just recommendations at the moment just some principles being developed going to the government to make a decision um, is okay, so how do we decide at that more regional or possibly even down to catchment level a balance of land uses should be um, and and how do local people feel about that changing in in the years ahead? Very very early days, but um that the, they've just started doing that. Uh, we've just started doing that up here in Scotland.
0: And where's that come from, Joe? Who's who's been developing the thinking on that, or or is it a? A, a result of a collaboration between lots of people and organisations?
1: Right, so it came through um, the declaration of the climate emergency and the, the, the Scottish government um, and the Sturgeon committing to, to net zero. And then a lot of work in government um, a year, 18 months ago Gosh, I'm least track of time. Um, saying okay, so what more do we need to do? Um, I think also stimulated by the committee on climate change report, and then in January the the one on land use that came out really, really identifying land use as fundamental if we are going to get to net zero. So the the government recognised it had to do something um, more than laissez-faire around land use, and and saw the way to go. Was to tackle this issue that John was just talking about, the gap between the national and the, and the more local. Um, and this is what, and this is what they're trying to do. I mean, we don't know whether it'll be a success or not, quite sure what shape it's going to take, but it was a response to the, the climate emergency. And I think also stimulated by the, the biodiversity crisis as well. And obviously cap as well. Sorry. The other big driver in all of this, which is, um, you know, that Brexit and us coming out of the EU and what are we going to replace the common agricultural policy with?
0: Oh, no. Do you know, I thought we were going to be able to have a conversation without mentioning Brexit at all, Joe. <laughs> well, John, it sounds like we could take a leaf out of Scotland's book, could we?
2: Well, um, to be fair, the the processes that Joe uh, described are also in the course of being implemented in Wales. We could, for instance, look at the um, regional area statement approach being, being led by uh, Natural Resources Wales, um, but I think it's fair to say that um, Scotland has gone a lot further and a lot quicker, and I, I do think Wales has got a lot, a lot to learn from the Scottish um, experience here. So this link up with Joe is very, very welcome in that regard. I, I want to pick out um, an underlying issue relating to, uh, specifically to trees and forests that lies behind this, and that, and, and that's the crucial importance of location. Um, the, whether there's a net benefit for society, for landowners and so on, of um, establishing woodland in a particular location will so much depend on on where that is within the landscape, within the catchment, for instance, Um, and therefore what kind of a woodland um, managed in what way is actually going to help to deliver that. And I think there's a great There's a risk um, that we are too um, prescriptive in our thinking about what a well-managed woodland looks like. Um, It's good that we have the idea of minimum standards and we make sure that there should be no um, significant environmental harm caused by any um, permitted uh, land-use change to woodland. But I think it must be a matter of horses for courses. So, for instance, if we were looking at an area of land alongside a a watercourse, um, particularly in the upper reaches, the headwaters of a, a river or stream, then there's a this, this clear benefit of uh, the shade of trees and certain kinds of woodlands for the primary purpose of improving the quality of that water, its habitat for bu- aquatic biodiversity, for mitigating flood risk. In locations close to uh, a human population, then a, a, a woodland may have a particular benefit there, provided it's managed well for public recreation um, with proper risk assessments uh, and and so on, connected with that and the right kind of woodland for that purpose. In other locations, um, biodiversity may be a a really high priority, but there will also be locations where um, producing timber, sustainably but intensively, is actually going to deliver the, the, the most benefit from that area of land. And I think there's a risk that um, producing timber might kind of be rather overlooked in all of these other exciting benefits we see for woodlands. It's a matter of uh, being in the right place, but there still is a huge scope um, to manage some of our new woodlands, primarily for wood production, if
0: they're in the right location. Joe, jo, were you wanting to come in there?
1: No, no, that was, that was fine. I mean, I'm just like um, furiously agreeing with, with John, really. Geography matters um couldn't couldn't matter more really anything to do with land use place is vital um you, you can't extract it's not like a, a, uh um, you know digital services which can be located anywhere and as we're learning with home working you can work from anywhere land use because it's land where it is matters um and and you can't avoid that and so totally agree with with john um about everything he said really just then and and about the importance we've still got to produce things from these woods you wouldn't expect a farmer to farm a piece of land and not produce any not produce anything from it that he can sell so that's or she can sell so you know i think it's an odd concept to think that that woods just exist and don't and don't produce anything tangible
0: we, we've talked a bit about the UK experience or certainly Scotland and, and Wales. Can, can we learn anything from examples in, in other countries across the globe where they've maybe had to address these same kinds of issues? Is there any any good practice that we can identify or, or point to or, or are we at the forefront? Are we kind of leading the field in this? Uh, John? John?
2: I think we have to realise that in many of the countries with the most well-developed forestry sector, they have a lot more land to play with. They can do things, plan things on a much larger scale um, that improves their, the economics of their wood production. It's why you know it's one of the reasons why imported wood is uh, so competitive with in price of homegrown timber in this country. Um, so. We do have to um, be careful in extra- if we extrapolate lessons from other countries into making it fit into um, the kind of more finer grained um, landscapes we have, particularly in in England and Wales. Perhaps parts of Scotland also have that that larger scale canvas to to, to play with. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be learned. Interestingly, not just from the sort of famous forestry com- countries, if you like, of Canada and the United States and Germany and Sweden and so on, but also from a wi- wider range of countries, including in the tropics, which uh, where the culture of land use has hung on to the value of trees as a component of land use systems much, to a much stronger extent than it has in this country. So we so often see in this country a conflict set up between food production and forestry, between agriculture and forestry, and it's it's become really quite a, a problematic issue culturally as well as in terms of institutions and the skills involved and so on. But in fact, we can look at many countries in the world and see how um, trees do play a valuable role of improving the sustainability, of reducing the need for inputs into in, into some land use systems and as our climate warms up perhaps the benefits of shade as well as winter shelter and so on uh, certainly for livestock farmers are more manifest and and also um, in terms of uh, soil condition um, we've been rather mining our soils through ploughing and so on and, uh, and 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 fertiliser regimes in this country for a long time and um Crop rotation can help to deal with that, but again, the role of woody plants or trees as a component of that farming landscape, these are very well developed practices in, in many places around the world, including in the tropics. And I think um, we we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think we haven't got a lot to learn from subsistence and small scale farmers in, in many other places around the world. Joe,
1: yeah, I agree with that, John. It's a really really nicely made point. And um, this 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 whole business of people and productive forestry and what we can learn from it. And I absolutely agree. Yeah, the whole issue, the whole discipline of community forestry kind of developed in um in in Africa and in India as um the, the whole land tenure changed as the colonial powers moved out in these countries started to try and get their heads around who owned the resources, who managed them, and how do you feed your people, and also stop mining your soils. I mean, that's a brilliant phrase of mining the soils. So, uh, And now we we see community forestry over here, be it in urban settings, such as um, in Manchester, Liverpool, seeing a lot of urban forestry going on, very much community forest-based, or in Scotland, where you've got more remote, rural um, populations, also with difficulties around land tenure, um, taking more responsibility, being more involved in the management of their woodlands in a more rural community forestry sense, with loads to learn from, from what's gone on in, in more developing countries. So I think that's a really good point and plenty to learn. Um, I think the other thing that we can, we can learn is about how to use wood products. And we have a, a real history in UK forestry of um, going and seeing what other countries are doing and then innovating off the back of that it's what we did with the North American species when we um, we saw what was going on in North America, and we found that these species could thrive in this country, and we adapted our silviculture. We've seen it with sawmilling um, technology. We've now got one of the most advanced sawmilling industries um, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and that's largely because we saw what was happening abroad, or when I say we, um, the, the, the sawmilling businesses over here, learnt from abroad and then built on it and have got really, really modern um, timber processing facilities, both in sawmilling and in panel board production in the UK, and big investment as well. Um, so I think the, how, the, the next big thing on the horizon is, is biotech and how to use wood for different things. Um, particularly in the replacement of um, petrochemical-derived products such as fabrics um, or other petrochemical products that you can produce from wood as well. And I think the developments in that area are fascinating and also the use of wood in buildings where other countries are way, way ahead of the UK because, as John says, they've had a resource that they could innovate with We now have an increasing resource, increasing timber production coming from UK-grown timber. How can we use that to get more of that into into building, to substitute for um, more carbon-intensive materials, um, to use homegrown produce and to reduce waste and to improve thermal um, performance, so improve the carbon footprint of those homes. All of those things, I think, um, are big things that we can learn from abroad. The final point I would make and to bring us back to climate change is fire um, and the increased likelihood of of large scale fires um, and wildfires and how to adapt our silviculture to cope with this risk. We don't really have that much, um, although Wales has probably had the field in this, um, but our ability to manage woods, whether it's an increased risk of fire, I think there's probably plenty we can learn from abroad on that.
2: I'd really like to come in on a couple of the points Joe mentioned there, if that's okay. I'm yeah, please do, Joe. Picking up the point Joe made at the end there, I, I, I think um, it is rather sad that in many ways Britain is behind the curve of other countries with a better established forestry culture and forestry sector, but I think we can benefit from that by learning their lessons. So Joe just mentioned fire and, and indeed um We have every reason to anticipate an increased fire risk in forests in this country. And there are many countries in North America in particular that have learned very painful lessons about how to and how not to um, mitigate the risk of fires and how you can make the situation much worse if you get it wrong. So it's vital we learn that. Closer to home, home, we can also anticipate with almost certainty that we're going to face an ever greater risk of um, not just the tree diseases that are so um, affecting many of our species elms and uh, ashes and so on, but also pests as well which we've largely um, escaped from that, but if we look at what's happening in Central Europe at the moment um, with the uh, spruce trees in particular these are challenges that well-established forestry systems in Germany and elsewhere are really struggling with a combination of drought and pest risk, and they've not solved it yet. But my goodness, we need to uh, learn from their efforts to doing so. Absolutely. But I do want to pick up now um, the, the vital, the vital point that Joe made about um, but technology uh, and increased use of uh, wood um, in its various forms and, and increased potential substitute for um, fossil fuel derived or very carbon-intensive uh, materials, be they plastic steels, concrete, and so on. And this now um, creates a, a major dilemma linked to some of the things we discussed earlier, because many people in this country, their vision of an expanded uh, forest cover, expanded woodland, and indeed their view about what would be most beneficial for the climate would be the establishment of... Um, native woodlands, semi-natural woodlands composed of uh, native tree species that we leave preserved, unharvested, with that fixed carbon in situ. And there's a very strong perception that that's the the contribution we need to make to meet these climate change targets. But as Joe hinted, um, and indeed some vigorous research that we've recently been carrying out in Bangor shows very, very clearly, actually woodlands that are managed for timber production, that are harvested, provided that we have the technology through the value chain to the markets, that we start to build houses with more timber in their structures, more use of wood in insulation, in in many other components of what we do. But this uh, transforms the benefit of forestry for meeting our climate change targets. It's controversial. The analysis is very complicated, but we're extremely confident in the... uh, research that we've recently completed and is currently under review uh, in a journal, uh, a leading journal for um, publication. This is going to require um, some quite hard debate and discussion about the evidence between people who've got strongly contrasting visions about what most of our new forests and woodlands should
0: look like. Are you both optimistic? about the future because because a lot of what we've talked about has described some really big challenges you know if i was going to say to you paint paint me a picture of the future would would the picture be a, a rosier one than than perhaps we we might describe now joe
1: yeah, absolutely. I don't think you can come into forestry and not be optimistic because, <laughs> you, know, you know, trees are for the future. So um, if you're not optimistic, then you kind of wonder why you're in it. So so yes, I am optimistic. I'm probably in spite of the the huge challenge, huge challenges um, that are emerging, the opportunities. I've never known the opportunities as um big as they are for our profession um, as they are at the moment the interest in trees the bidding war that's going on for just how many trees each government around the world is going to plant, the enthusiasm amongst the public, I've I've never really seen anything like it and and that's in sort of 30 years in forestry and that's an enormous opportunity and yeah we won't get everything right but when has anybody ever got everything right Um, the thing is is that People have recognised the value, multiple values of trees. Um, So, so yes, I am optimistic. The the difficulty is going to be bridging the gap, um, I think, between what society's aspirations are increasingly going to be for our our wood resource and the people and the skills that are there to provide it. The, The solution to a lot of these questions is good forest design. You can have woodlands that produce timber, that um, are nice places to visit um, and to recreate in, are rich in biodiversity and, and maybe helping with things like flood and flooding and a looking up carbon, but you need to design them. You need to put the effort into designing them and you need skilled people to be able to do that. That, you can't just create that overnight. Um, and then you also need the people to work in them. And that's very skilled as well. So I, so I think the bit that I'm worried about is this gap between the enthusiasm and the opportunity that we're now presented with um, in, in forestry, and I'm using forestry in its broadest term there, um, and the, the the people that we've got and the employment for them to to commit to learning and developing that trade, so that we design and manage these forests um, effectively, because it needs to be done at scale.
0: Mm.
2: John, okay. Well, I share the view that there's been a transformation in public thinking in this, and you 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 have to uh, place the highest importance on that. Um, it, nothing matters more than that perception that knowledge. There is still a really big global change to the global economic order. There are many countries in the world that um, host the world's largest and most important forests where uh, the situation is not good. And I don't want to particularly name any particular countries. They're not only tropical ones. Some of them uh, have large areas of boreal to change political decision-making and approaches to management to deal with the sort of global crises that they, that they are contributing to. So it is still a mixed picture on a global scale, but the, tr- the trend is definitely in the right direction. In this country, picking up on Joe's point, um, as a, a professor in, in, in Bangor and a, a teacher of forestry um, to our students, I would say that the quality, the enthusiasm, the dedication of the students we are graduating in this year's uh, BSc Forestry class is probably one of the best we've ever had. I mean, outstanding group of, uh, uh, of of graduates who I'm sure, like their predecessors, will will make a huge contribution to the needs that that Joe describes, and that, and that's massively important. We're also attracting some really high caliber people at the masters level who may be converting from another profession who. Um, uh, who are bringing a lot of skills from the outside, going through our, our Master's Forestry program again uh, with a huge amount to contribute. What I will say is, there's a conundrum here, that while those who are turning their interest and enthusiasm into a wish to make a career uh, of managing our trees, our woodlands, our forests for the future, while there are some doing that, there still aren't enough. And, and Joe hinted about about career structure, about, um, one could mention salaries and, and so on. There's clearly more to be done to make not just a, a, an enthusiasm for woodlands, but actually a, a commitment that this is going to be my career, my profi- profession. This is what I'm going to dedicate myself to during my working life. We, we need to still do more to make that attractive to people. Because for those who do see that, many of them have a really rewarding career to look back on. But we just need to keep on selling that message more and more.
1: I, I'd just like to come in there and endorse what uh, John has said again, <laughs> but also to, to really emphasise that difference between a job and a profession. Forestry is a profession. In my professional career, um, which started off with a degree in agriculture and forestry, I have done jobs which have varied from managing squads of people out on the hill planting trees, to designing IT systems, to advising ministers, to um, writing a forestry strategy, to managing organisations, and everything in between. But all of it has been in the forestry profession. And I think people need to look at forestry as a profession with huge numbers of opportunities rather than as a job. And we have an institute. Um, I'm on the council of the Institute of Chartered Foresters. John is also a member, which is an incredibly supportive um, organisation. And this, in, this amazing network of, I think we've got nearly 2,000 members. So it is a profession with lots of different jobs within it. And if there's one thing I could just ask your listeners to really speak to young people, speak to thinking people who are thinking about changing their careers and really to look into this because it's a profession with a great future and with all sorts of opportunities in it.
0: We'd struggled with the connection to John and lost the line at the end, but I did want John to tell me about Bangi University's connection with forestry around the world. And also I wanted to give him a chance to paint a picture of a future forest in Wales so i called him back and and john is it true that that there are lots of countries around the world who um whose forestry knowledge and expertise derives from former Bangor graduates who who've gone out and, and shown people what what they could and should be doing
2: yes um This is tied up of course with um, the British uh, (laughs) colonial legacy because a lot of the foresters who were trained in Bangor and other universities in the UK, um, many of them practiced their profession in Britain but of course many of the others went out uh, as colonial forestry officers. But in the post-colonial era um, Bangor attracted many many um, students to study forestry from around the world and you can look at a the forestry departments and institutions in many countries in Africa, Asia uh, and and in the Americas and still see a a really impressive uh, number of banger graduates who still occupy positions including senior positions uh, in these services around the world.
0: And John you wanted to paint a picture of a future forest.
2: Yeah uh, I would see a mosaic that's of of woodland and trees distributed across the landscape comprising woodlands in appropriate locations. It will be very variable in size and their shape and their species composition. They, they will include a mixed forest designed to deliver a complex combination of benefits um, and certainly a higher density of trees in some of the farmland. Um, but also substantial areas of forest that are managed for efficient delivery of particular benefits, um, not least sustainably produced um, timber, as well as areas providing high quality space for recreation or high quality habitats for threatened biodiversity. So, for those people who've um, had a chance to uh, travel and see forests around the world and may have visited the Jura or the Alps or the Carpathians, uh, in Europe, then the kind of lower slopes of um, of those areas, with their sort of patchy mosaic of woodland and agriculture, could be a very appropriate model for uh, how some of the landscape in Wales will look in the future.
0: And that idea of the future is something I take into our second autumn conversation, which focuses on the way we build, or perhaps I should say, make our future homes. A big thanks to both John Healy and Joe O'Hara. It was a real pleasure.